Hey, really good friends. This episode contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more detailed descriptions and take care of yourself. Hello, and welcome to Historically Really Good Friends, a queer history podcast. I'm Rachel Craig. And I'm Jared Femblo. Hey, Jared. Hi. <laughs> How's it going? It's good. I'm going to be honest. The mm-hmm. intro music played. I like forgot for a moment what we were doing. I, I got stage fright for a little bit. <laughs> well, you're on, kid. Yeah, we're here now. I have a question. Okay. Um, how much, and we're just, I'm just going to jump right into a question because sure. it came up in my uh, story this week, sort of. Mm-hmm. What, how much do you know about astrological signs? Oh or like God. zodiac signs, I guess they're different. Mm. Okay, so I live in Los Angeles, which is like, I feel like that's one of like the standard questions. Um, mm. Like people, like it's really big out here. And if you like don't know, people kind of like look at you a little weird. And I don't really know like too much about it. Okay. I know, I know like my signs. Like, I know I'm a Scorpio. Um, mm-hmm. I know I'm a Cancer Moon and oh, you really a Virgo know. Rising or something like that. Um, okay. I don't know what any of it means. I couldn't tell you a thing. Like, someone is like, I'm a Cancer. I'm like, okay, cool. Like, I don't... <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't know what it Crap. means. Right. I couldn't okay. tell you anything about it. What are you? Well, I'm a Leo, but I was hoping you were going to know more information because... <laughs> I similarly, I just know that I'm a Leo. I had that app for a little bit. CoStar. That tells you, yep, yep, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. that girly. I had her for a little bit, but I just didn't fully get into it, and I don't remember what it said. But Me I was going to ask if we're, like, supposed to be compatible as friends or something. I mean, we are. Yeah. It's been 10 well, years, but. My, <laughs> uh, my mom is a Leo, um, and okay. we get along very well, my mother and I. Um, and I'm I was so, ar- so glad to hear it. <laughs> and I would argue that you and I get along really well. So I don't know. I I don't know if it's like signs. Are there like signs that get along better than others? I think so. Well, I think so. I th- I'm. I think based on your sign, you're supposed to have certain personality characteristics. Mm-hmm. But that's that's the theory behind it. Right. And then those personality characteristics are more suited for like compatibility I guess with others and I would have thought we wouldn't have gotten along but again I think we've proved the these made up <laughs> the haters <stars. laughs> we've proved them wrong <laughs> why don't you think we would be good friends I because it's my understanding that Scorpios are like like your your snakes okay so there's <laughs> um there along with zodiac signs there's also like the Hogwarts houses homes oh the Hogwarts. right right categories Hogwarts. <laughs> yeah, the houses the houses <laughs> the houses and um scorpios are like notoriously slytherins right and i do think slytherins get a bad rep as a whole but as i would say do scorpios right th- so maybe that's it again i don't really know that much about either and like slytherin house some people are mm-hmm. like really big i don't really know too much about either no. but I just didn't think we get along, but also Leos apparently like don't really get along with anybody because we're just a bunch of bitchy people, which really? fine. 
Apparently, because we're just like bold and annoying, and I accept well, that like we were just talking. Well, like bold and brave and like like a lion, you know, Leo. Maybe, but um, it's I think it's more like how we we're talking about before. You need to turn my microphone levels down because I'm too mm-hmm. loud. I think like that's a Leo thing. Like maybe shh shh boisterous. Yeah, so it's hard for people to get along with you if they're also the same way. I think. Mm. Um, yeah, well, are, would you consider yourself extroverted or introverted? Oh, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. So, I think what's your like can... Ian? Your Ian? Oh, the personality type. Myers Briggs. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember that. That's also fake. I was a psych major in college, so okay. um, so <laughs> just leave, just like leave personality tests alone. Okay. But um. <laughs> I always thought I was extroverted because I was just like loud and could get by in a social situation, but I actually am introverted because I don't really like being in social situations. I don't really like having to talk to people, especially strangers. I don't get my energy from being very social. I prefer to just kind of like be on my own or with Mm -hmm. like people I'm very close with. And so I guess maybe I'm introverted and just loud. Maybe I'm just a loud introvert. Yeah. No, you are. And I would agree okay. with, I would say probably the same for me. Okay. Although I don't know if What's I would it? say I'm loud, but definitely introverted, but like can get by. I'm like an extroverted introvert. Like I could get by in a social setting and like I can make friends easily with people, but like at mm-hmm. the same time, I do not want to. Okay. So you're just trying to say that you're good at everything. That... <laughs> yeah. This is, <laughs> this is, this is where I'm bringing the conversation is that I am so good at being a person and in social right. settings. That is astounding. <laughs> yeah. You're just all of the personality types. <laughs> right. That's that's really where I wanted to bring this conversation today. <laughs> Perfect. I'm so glad we had it. Well, now you have a lot to live up to when you give us your story this week because <laughs> Do you, I? Just, you, you check all the boxes. <laughs> you're loud, but you're quiet. You're introverted, but you're extroverted. <laughs> oh, my God. So I'm so better, complex. <laughs> you better bring it this week. I will. Oh, God. Um, I also wrote down another question, but it feels really off topic right now, so we can save it. No, it's okay. Ask me. (laughs) What what did you have planned? Okay, (laughs) so I was in the bathroom at work today. Okay. Okay. (laughs) And I was looking in the mirror, and I was washing my hands, and I was like, Mm -hmm. preparing for the podcast. And I was like, hmm, last time we kind of talked about – like our sexual awakenings this week i wanted to ask you what is the oldest that you would date like right now as your current self what is the oldest you would date like realistically be realistic so this is something that i had to explain to my mom that in the queer community um it's not uncommon um for partners to have a significant age gap or more of an age gap than you might see in a heterosexual um relationship and like on my dating apps because i'm single and on dating apps um my preferences i don't have anybody younger than me so i'm 24 so my age starts at 25 uh for my preferences so it starts at 25 and it goes up until like 35 36 um okay that's, that's younger than i was going to say I was going to say, but then there are nights where for fun, just for like shits and giggles, <laughs> I'll throw that bad boy up to like a hundred. Just, like, so just, like, <laughs> just to see who's out there. Like, I 
would also draw the line at how old my parents are. You have to be right. younger than my parents, I think. Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah, yeah. But I said, sim- I was thinking about it in the bathroom mirror at work. Okay. That I was like, okay, 15 years older now mm-hmm. would be like late 30s before, pre-40. pre Yeah. Uh, like 38-ish. Yeah. I feel like that's, okay, agreed. Well, you know what? So glad. You know what's tricky though about that age range? And it's like going out to the bars and everything when you're flirting with someone now that we're of the age where we're adults. Um, like I have to look at people's ring finger to make sure that they're not Uh, wearing a wedding ring uh, right it gets like it's now you have to start being conscious and they could not be wearing one but like there have been times where like someone's been flirting with me and i've been like oh funny 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 chat 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 and they literally just like glance down and they're wearing a fucking wedding ring uh, and i'm like okay you could be in an open relationship but yeah i don't i don't care for it yeah and you shouldn't and those people knock it off I haven't had that experience because I'm not actively looking to date someone. Right. But but I hate that. I yeah. hate that. We've we've been watching a lot of Desperate Housewives and now I'm constantly assuming everyone's cheating on everyone. And different than Real Housewives, also, by the way, to clarify. because um, last time we talked about Real Housewives, we were watching Desperate Housewives, and so I think everyone's oh. cheating on everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah, that's icky. That makes Very. me angry. Yeah. Ugh, whatever. I'm barely on dating apps. Get over it. Well, yeah, Jared's dingling on dating apps, so <laughs> Come do it that way you will. <laughs> God. Okay, scrap all of this. <laughs> Start over. <laughs> Nobody can hear this. Let's get into our stories. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> I'm going first this week. Yes, you are. You are going first this week. We're going into some... Uh, uncharted territories here on Historically Really Good Friends. And for the first time, we are talking about sports. Um, Mm. Sorry, it had to come to this because, you know what? Queer people can play sports, Rachel. (laughs) Okay? Queer people can do everything. Fine, you're right. (laughs) Queer people can do people things too. Thank you. Thank you for admitting that. (laughs) <laughs> um, what's your what's your relationship to sports like oh, um what a great question I have a complicated relationship to sports um in that um I seem seemingly every well my my boyfriend really likes sports and so it's been five five ish years over five years and I still do not understand probably the least bit about any sport i've tried i'm getting better at basketball um at, at understanding it not playing it, <laughs> playing it. <laughs> um i have gotten slightly better at understanding basketball and i would prefer to watch basketball football i have no interest it makes no sense to me um okay. baseball is slow enough that i can understand what's going on but too slow that i ever want to watch again uh, although in high school um, a friend, myself, and a friend of ours um, were baseball stack girls, which just made us sluts not knowing that much about baseball. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I still don't know. That's that's my extent extensive knowledge of sports, really. Perfect. Well, I'm glad that you have some sort of connection um, to sports and specifically to baseball because okay. we're going to be talking 
More specifically, I'm going to be talking about Glenn Burke and the High Five. Oh, okay. This has already taken some turns. I'm very ready. Let's just go over some sources. I used a 10-minute video from Aeon called The Origins of the High Five and Its Inventor, an Unsung Gay Pioneer, the ESPN article by John Mualem titled The Wild Mysterious History of Sport's Most Enduring Gesture, The High Five, the National Black Justice Coalition profile on Glenn Burke, the Legacy Projects profile on Glenn Burke, and Glenn Burke's Wikipedia page. So let's start on October 2nd, 1977 at the Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles. It's the last day of the last weekend of the 1977 season and a home game for the Dodgers who are playing against the Houston Astros. 46,000 screaming fans crowd the stands, sweating in the sweltering heat, but the action and the drama of the baseball game is enough to forget how hot it is. It's the sixth inning, but at this point, the Dodgers have already clenched the playoffs. However, the game is still high stakes because Ron Say, Dusty Baker, Steve Garvey, and Reggie Smith, all Dodgers players, have the chance to become the first home run quartet in baseball history, which means 30 home runs per player in a season. Ron Say, Steve Garvey, and Reggie Smith have all hit their 30 home run mark, but Dusty Baker is missing just one home run to join the group. The Dodgers have played a game every single day of this last weekend of the season, but Dusty Baker doesn't hit his 30th home run Friday nor Saturday, but finally during the sixth inning on Sunday. As he makes his way around the diamond, the crowd goes wild. The team can hardly contain their excitement. This is an incredibly big moment. After Baker has rounded third and is headed home, Glenn Burke, a black rookie but burgeoning baseball star on the Dodgers, is on deck to bat next. Glenn Burke, being known for his high energy and excitement, often called the life of the team, is overcome with such elation for his friend Dusty Baker that he throws his hand far over and behind his head, fingers spread wide, palm open. Dusty, seeing Glenn Burke cocking his hand back, unsure of what to do, throws his own hand up and the two slap their palms together. And there, in front of 46,000 plus people, Glenn Burke and Dusty Baker give the first high five. Sorry, I love the idea that two people were so excited. They were just like, hit me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what I don't know what to do, but hit me. (laughs) And that's what Glenn Burke would later recall is that his intention was never to innovate anything, but rather it was just this overwhelming amount of emotion of joy and pride for what Dusty had just done that the high five sort of just came out of him. That's so funny. <laughs> and there's a history of um, in other sports like basketball players doing like a low five. So the concept of like slapping palms together is is nothing new. But the high five is something completely different that people just were not doing until this moment, basically. They couldn't and, they couldn't yet conceptualize the lifting of the arms. It just had to be a lower. Right, because it's weird. It's like, why would you throw your hand up and then slap it against somebody else's? Like, it just. (laughs) I guess you're right. In the beginning, it didn't make sense. But after this game for the next few seasons, the high five, which is this new handshake, becomes a staple of the Dodgers, with team members constantly giving five after good innings and throughout games. The Dodgers even run an ad during the 1980 season boasting their unique high five salute. The high five becomes a craze amongst the media and fans of the team, and the new greeting spreads like wildfire. 
Let's go back and talk a bit about the High Five originator himself, Glenn Burke. He's born on November 16th, 1952, so he's a fellow Scorpio, in Oakland, California. His father, Luther, is a sawmill worker and leaves the family when he's only 11 months old, and his mother, Alice, a nursing home worker, supports her eight children single-handedly. Throughout his childhood, Glenn attends church up to six times a week, sings in two choirs, and serves as an usher. And I just want to ask you real quick, you just had, like, an expression of, <laughs> like, you just discovered some wild fact. What What's happening over there? Sorry, um, I said oof to the eight kids single parent thing, but the expression was, and I don't want to spoil a little bit of mine, but it, the reason I brought up astrology in the beginning is because the person I'm talking about later is also a fellow Leo. And I found it very no bizarre that that was the same situation. I mean, like there's only 12 months out of a year, but right. still I found it very strange that um, it seems all of our stories will have some weird thing in common. And I, pro- I promise we do not plan no. this at all. We don't write them together. We don't do any of this together. So that, that was so... just shocking to me. Yeah. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. Wow. And okay. the eight kids. That's, that's, that's stressful. Sorry. Very stressful. Absolutely. Mm. In high school, Glenn, who is barely standing over six feet tall, is an accomplished basketball player, leading his team to an undefeated season and the 1970 championships. He receives the Northern California MVP Award and the Northern California's High School Basketball Player of the Year in 1970. It's also reported that he's able to dunk with both hands and the average net height is 10 feet tall. And so he's barely standing at six feet tall and he's jumping four feet using both hands to dunk. It's very impressive. Glenn receives a scholarship to the University of Denver in 1970, but after only a few months there, he returns home to Oakland and enrolls in Merritt College, a local community college, and plays on his baseball team. Being naturally gifted in sports, Glenn performs so well for Merritt that the LA Dodgers recruit him to start playing in its minor league system in 1971. An assistant coach describes him as the next Willie Mays, a well-renowned black baseball player. Overall, he's a highly scouted star. And five years later, in 1976, Glenn Burke is finally drafted to the major league on the LA Dodgers team. Yay! Woo! Within his first season, he becomes a hit with his teammates, who all quickly take to Glenn. He's just this engaging, incredibly likable person. John Mualam writes in an ESPN article that the Oakland native was an irrepressibly charismatic man who, even as a 24-year-old rookie that season, had become the soul of the Dodgers clubhouse. He did Richard Pryor stand-up for memory and would stuff towels under his shirt and waddle bow-legged around the dugout, imitating Dodgers manager Tommy Lasorda. Dusty Burke recalls in an interview that Glenn could do almost anything he set his mind to, which is something picked up on by the reporters who almost fawn over Glenn, remarking at how he's this unbelievable athlete, a physical force of nature. Dusty also mentions that outside of the clubhouse, Glenn is the life of the party, always tearing up the dance floor. He could light up the room with his infectious smile. In 1978, two seasons into his career with the Dodgers, Glenn is sort of stuck in this outfielder position he joined as, and he's not really advancing or getting the praise he deserves slash is used to. And then suddenly, in the middle of the season, Glenn Burke is traded to the Oakland Athletics. This shocking trade comes completely out of nowhere to the public. You know, maybe it's injuries, maybe he just wasn't meshing with the team, maybe some other baseball reason. 
unfortunately though for glenn and his teammates they can smell the trade coming way before it happens while he's with the dodgers glenn is an openly gay man to his teammates managers and the team's owners dusty baker remembers the trade saying i mean i don't know what people are going to say about the reason why he was traded but we kind of know the reason why he was traded is because he was gay can't be any more blunt than that everybody knew it wasn't any secret Everybody knew, but I'm just telling you, nobody was going to say anything to him. Nobody's going to ask him any questions or anything. This guy was tough. He was physically tough. Good guy, but you know, he'll break your jaw in a minute. Glenn's sexuality starts to circulate around the league, and the Dodgers don't want to deal with this negative attention, especially after their recent winning streaks. So the Dodgers executives scramble to squash the circulating rumors at all costs. In the 1977 offseason, general manager and team VP Al Campanis offered Glenn $75,000 to get married. What? John Mualem writes that the Dodgers executive later explained that the offer was not a bribe, but as a quote-unquote helpful gesture to pay for Burke's honeymoon. Glenn rejects the marriage deal and responds, I guess you mean to a woman? Yeah, what a weird proposal from your boss. Um, I don't know how that could be taken in any other way. Just like the right. blatant, just like here's literally a bribe we're, to like go right, we're gonna marry pay a woman off. to get, yeah to like that's so that's very strange. Mm-hmm. Around the same time of this scandal, Glenn also angers Dodger manager Tommy Lasorda by befriending his son Tommy Lasorda Jr nicknamed Spunky, a young socialite who was known to frequent West Hollywood's gay scene. Oh, yeah, there's a there's a cum joke in there for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I was not expecting that. <laughs> and it seems that Spunky's sexuality isn't much of a secret, but rather not directly ever talked about. But either way, Tommy Lasorda Sr. denies this completely. After Spunky's death in 1991, Tommy Lasorda claims that the cause was pneumonia, whereas the death certificate states his death was likely AIDS-related. My son wasn't gay. No way, Tommy would go on to say in an interview. Tensions continue to rise in the clubhouse between Glenn and the team administration. Tommy Lasorda stops being amused by Glenn's dugout antics and, according to Glenn, once turned on him and chewed him out. Glenn was constantly walking on thin ice, and a trade was inevitable, although it wasn't easy. Teams didn't want the extra hassle that Glenn's sexuality would bring with having him, but in the end, he was traded to the only team that would take him, the Oakland A's, in exchange for a player named Billy North. The Dodgers claimed that they needed an experienced player who could contribute in the right way. North had better statistics and more experience, but many would argue that overall he was less talented than Glenn. Glenn, although out to his teammates and family, isn't out to the public, so when he talks about the trade to the press, he does so in vague terms and gives generic reasoning. Glenn explains, I never got a chance here. I felt I was supposed to kiss ass and I didn't. As far as getting along with Lasorda, that didn't work out too well. Sports reporters describe the trade as sucking the life out of the Dodgers clubhouse. A couple of players were even seen crying at their lockers. And after two sort of fruitless seasons with the Dodgers, Glenn looks forward to starting fresh with his new team, back in his original stomping grounds. 
Glenn's personal manager, along with many fans, hopes that this is the place and the team in which Glenn's career can blossom. He's just really beginning to achieve what he's really able to do, so now is the time to show everyone what he's made of. But unfortunately, as his manager says, this was the exact wrong place for Glenn. His troubles from LA follow him home. As soon as he gets there, the Oakland A's manager, Billy Martin, introduces Glenn as a in front of his new teammates. His words are literally, oh, by the way, this is Glenn Burke and he's a Oh my God. I don't know if I can say that, so I'm gonna maybe bleep out those words, but it's the F word. He calls him the F word in front of his team directly, like the first day that he's introduced. And so... This homophobic language is quickly normalized, the F word being thrown around the clubhouse, and Billy Martin even refused to play Glenn Burke at all. Some, if not most, of the team avoided showering at the same time as Glenn. And so Glenn, used to being the center of attention in the life of the clubhouse, is incredibly upset with how uncomfortable he's being made to feel, as well as how uncomfortable his presence is making his teammates feel. Right. The rampant homophobia, along with a knee injury, gives the Oakland A's enough reason to demote him to their minor league in Utah before the major league season even begins. So he gets right. traded to the se- this team, and they're like, what Like, what reasons can we use to not have you on this team, basically? Right. And so you end up in Utah, and also, you know, the one thing I talk about a lot with, like, professional athletes is, in this case, obviously, like, obvious homophobia, and that makes things worse, but not only were you used to being on a team that supported you and cared about you, but like, this is your job. This is your Mm -hmm. whole career. And then it's effectively over just because people won't even give you a chance to play what you're good. Like the reason that your job to do your job. And so you have effectively kind of nothing left if you've dedicated your whole life to this thing. Right. And so Glenn only plays 25 games for the minor league team when usually a season is around 144 games before he is released from his contract. Glenn abruptly retires from baseball feeling like there's no other option for him. His dream is too far away now to feel like he can ever get it back and he's only 27 years old. Oh my gosh. Talk about a quarter life crisis. Wow. Now officially done with baseball, Glenn packs up his belongings and moves to the Castro in San Francisco, the neighborhood that we have talked a lot about. And here he fits into the community, which is surprisingly centered heavily around the gay softball league. And he's like this local legend. He's dominating as a shortstop in this league and also competes twice in the Gay Olympics, now called the Gay Games, and he's winning medals both times. And Jack McGowan, a friend of Glenn's from the Gay Softball League, says he was a hero to us. He was athletic, clean cut, masculine. He was everything that we wanted to prove to the world that we could be. Uh Not really wanting to come out publicly, but at the same time wanting to control the information and the story that was swirling around the country, Glenn becomes the first former professional baseball player to come out of the closet when he discusses his sexuality in a 1982 Inside Sports Magazine article, The Double Life of a Gay Dodger, written by Michael J. Smith, with whom Burke had apparently been lovers for six years. Wow! I love that! That's amazing! Yeah, and so the high five was 
also a part of this hero that the community idolized. And so Glenn would sit around the Castro flashing his enormous smile, high-fiving everybody who went by. And so the high-five becomes this sort of defiant symbol of the queer community and gay pride. And he's a man rising from the ashes of his professional baseball career, hand-cocked high above his head. But unfortunately at this point, Glenn is struggling with a cocaine addiction. Then, as John Mualem puts it, it escalated in 1987 when a car plowed into him as he was crossing a street, breaking his right leg in four places and stealing his athleticism. No longer able to play baseball, no longer able to hold a job, and addicted to drugs, he goes broke. He even goes to San Quentin for a short stint. And then, in 1993, Glenn Burke tests positive for HIV. His health quickly declines. It was reported that the man who invented the high five could barely raise his hand near the end. On his deathbed, Glenn told reporters that if he had one regret, it was not pursuing a career in basketball and that his sexuality drove him out of baseball sooner than he was meant to be done. And in 1995, Glenn passes away at the age of 42. But when Glenn's health was declining, the popularity of the high five was only continuing to rise. And I mentioned in the beginning that the Dodgers ran an ad for their unique high-five salute during the 1980 season, but that was actually two years after they had basically just like discarded Glenn like he was nothing. And they continued to use the high-five, selling t-shirts and promotional posters with two hands joined. But it wasn't just baseball fans that were hopping onto the high-five wagon. The high-five was spreading throughout a variety of sports, becoming a staple greeting or an act of celebration in many countries. There was even a 1980 newspaper article talking about the invention of a high-five, but never mentions Glenn Burke at all, and rather credits other athletes from other teams and other sports. Tommy Lasorda, the Dodgers manager, was even interviewed and asked who invented the high-five, to which he responded, it's just one of those things. Who knows? So right. through and through, Tommy Lasorda, just, piece of shit. Just one of those things that I stole from queer right. people. You know, just one of those A queer things. black person. Right, right. So. But I don't want to leave Glenn's legacy as being only the forgotten inventor of the high five. He has left a significant mark on the baseball community, especially the queer baseball community. And in August 2013, Glenn is among the first class of inductees into the National Gay and Lesbian Sports Hall of Fame. In July 2014, the MLB announces plans to honor Glenn at the 2014 All-Star Game. Unfortunately, the Fox broadcast of the event does not mention Glenn Burke at all. In June 2015, the Oakland A's honor Glenn as part of the Athletics Pride Night. Glenn's brother, Sidney, throws the ceremonial first pitch. And then in June 2021, the Oakland A's renamed their annual Pride Night in Glenn's honor. Glenn is also inducted into the Baseball Reliquary Shrine of Eternals in 2015. And that is the introductory story of the incredibly queer inventor of the High Five, Glenn Burke. Thank you for sharing that story with me. And it I'm sure it was just an introduction. I'm going to have to go learn more about that now. And it'll give me, I don't know how much... Um, my boyfriend's friends will want to talk about this, but now it'll give me you something to in. talk about with them. Yeah, well, now in. I know about baseball. But thank you for telling that story. And it was really interesting. Overall, fairly sad. I think I'm um, really getting the pattern of your stories here, Jared, that you really hook me in the beginning. 
and then kind of take it all away. That's the issue with a lot of these stories is that they start generally positive and like happy and good and then like quickly sharply decline. And then there's like this really sad, tragic story. Unfortunately, that's the case for a lot of queer people in history. Um, But I also want to kind of note that while some of them have had um, these like sad, tragic endings, I don't want people to take away that ending that sad ending like please remember all of the accomplishments and good things that these people have done each and every one of them is kind of a queer hero in their own right so please continue to remember these people in you know a positive sense for all the good things that they've done and not just the shitty things that have happened to them yeah just remember them for the good things that they've done and and who they were i certainly will every time i I don't know how often I'm giving high fives, but maybe every time I use the emoji or something, I'll think about it. (laughs) So I will remember it. That's all I ask. Oh, I forget. I'm going second. Okay. (laughs) Well, I Um, went first, so unless I'm telling two stories tonight. No, but thank you for your story. And I realize... Again, genuinely, we do not plan ahead with who the other person is doing, but there's so much overlap. We're doing like a crossover episode all the time. Mm -hmm. The coincidence of it all is like mysterious. It's like, why does this keep happening? It is. It's just because we're compatible. That's what it is. Scorpio and Leo Um, together forever, baby. (laughs) So there are going to be some similarities in tonight's story. Um, And I'm going to be talking about the iconic writer and activist James Baldwin and kind of more broadly his impact on queer literature and black history. I'm so excited. Yeah, I feel like James Baldwin was a fun one. And the reason I chose him was because I knew of his writings Mm -hmm. and things, but never really knew so much about him personally or like the time period he was existing in. So I'm excited to tell you more about this one. Yeah, please. Sources I used for this week include the Queer Black History series from Romeo.com, Queer Portraits in History, the New York City LGBT Historic Sites Project, Out History, an Out.com article by Andrew Belonsky, as well as an article by Mashawn D. Simon for NBC News entitled James Baldwin Sexuality Complex and Influential. Mm-hmm. So James Arthur Baldwin was born on August 2nd, 1924, so a fellow Leo. Mm -hmm. He was born in Harlem, which is a neighborhood of Manhattan in New York City. At this time, in 1924, Harlem was in the midst of the Harlem Renaissance, so the early years of James's life were shaped by the diversity of this reinvigoration of art, music, and larger cultural changes, But just as these changes swept through Harlem in the 1920s, James, who was still a young child, became kind of more impacted by the poverty of the Great Depression, which began when he was just five years old in 1929. So he was born into the Harlem Renaissance, but then probably was more impacted and remembered more of the Great Depression. Right. So likely because of this and world war ii and because the fact that he was just a child Mm -hmm. there is less information about him at this time and like through his adolescence we know though that he lived and went to school in new york city and at one point he was preaching at his local church and that was likely going to be like a path for him but things changed and at the age of 24 in 1948 
Baldwin moved to France, where he worked on his writing and poetry. And part of this decision to move abroad was to escape racism in America and to be able to explore his sexuality more fully, leaving behind a country that still saw sex as shameful to become what he would call a, quote, transatlantic commuter. Wow. That's uh, it reminds me of two weeks ago, Oscar Wilde going to France because being gay was legal there. So that's really interesting that James Baldwin also goes there to kind of be feel more open and, and explore. Yeah, France is making an impact in some of our stories. Merci. Um, I also <laughs> I also <laughs> thought it was interesting, though, like. I don't know that much about France now. Mm-hmm. I didn't take French classes with you. Mm-hmm. But um, in terms of like racism in France, I'm pretty sure that's alive and well. And so it is interesting to me, and we talk about this more later, how all of those different aspects of James Baldwin's life are important and like shape his writing and his work. Mm-hmm. But France at this time was definitely more of a haven for like sexuality compared to America. And I also feel like France is always kind of like Paris specifically is always a haven for artists and writers with the cafes mm-hmm. and, you know, just like being Parisian and whatnot. So it, it just like yeah. kind of feels like an ideal setting for him. Yes. Agreed. Um, but I love this idea of also being a transatlantic commuter. Sounds funny to me, <laughs> which seems like very cool, but he does come back and forth between America and Europe, mainly France and I don't want to commute 35 minutes to work so but as we were kind of saying it was Europe and Paris more specifically that gave Baldwin the opportunity to explore gender sexuality and race though the culture of Europe at the time was different than America James was still being met with resistance when attempting to publish some of his books Hmm. themes of same-sex love affairs racism and other quote taboo topics were still too risky to publish publicly Though written in France by an American, it took a publisher in England to agree to publish Baldwin's second book titled Giovanni's Room in 1956. Oh my god. And the like hoops yeah, he's so having he to, to jump through just to even get his work published. Like, come on. Yeah. And at this point he's he's already published one book. He's fairly like he's known at least as a writer. It's not like he's right. kind of someone who, who he's not aspiring. Like, existent in the Right, exactly. Um, The book, Giovanni's Room, is said to have been dedicated to the Swiss painter Lucien Happersberger, someone who Baldwin has named the one true love story of my life. Um, This book was semi-autobiographical, detailing life as an American in Paris, but was explicitly about a sexual relationship between two men and kind of commented on the homophobia he was experiencing, which is ironic considering that because it talked about homophobia and things like that, it wasn't published. Right. <laughs> um, so curious. So Baldwin, like many of the historical figures we've discussed so far, did not specifically outline or define his sexuality. Instead, exploring the nuances of gay and bisexual relationships through his writing. He does provide insight into his own sexuality in his work, such as his essay, Here Be Dragons. Biographer Douglas Field says that Baldwin, quote, pioneered fictional accounts of homosexuality and bisexuality in his fiction. Though it was not only fiction where he was outspoken on these topics, he never did label himself, but was open about his relationship with men. In fact, James Baldwin and civil rights activist Bayard Rustin, which is kind of a throwback to episode three, if you remember. I do. 
I'm so glad. His, um, I feel so seen. His partner was, along with Tam O'Shaughnessy, was the first um, like p- person to accept the Medal of Honor or something like that for their partner. But it, right? Yeah, it, I wasn't quizzing you, but I'm so happy that you really did remember. Yeah, it's a Medal of Freedom. Yeah. The, the Congressional Medal of Freedom, I think. It's like okay. the highest civilian honor. But yes, so um, you do remember. I do. Um, but <laughs> James Baldwin and Bayard Rustin were the only black men open with the public about their same-sex relationships at the time. When I was reading, it doesn't necessarily specify what the time was. Mm-hmm. They existed and like were alive and doing this work from you know the early... 1900s until the 80s so it, they were just very public facing figures they were publicly known people um black men who were open about having sexual relationships with men okay so this earned baldwin the label as quote the first major black writer since the harlem renaissance to speak and write about same-sex relationships hmm. so thinking about that you know he was born kind of into that mm-hmm. time and it wasn't ever really commented on again until he was older and writing about it himself. What what was the cause of this like lull in conversations that were happening? It's like what overarching power system silenced these voices that it took until right. he was of age to write about the same topics? Right. And even once he was writing about it, it wasn't like there was a ton of other work being done at the same time. And it's also just interesting to think, you know, now we're able to do this podcast and things like that. And, you know, young queer people likely are able to find folks who have at least in some way done work before them and people that they look up to, or like are in a field that they want to go into. And so thinking in this way, you know, we talk a lot about like resilience and Mm -hmm. having to like, forcefully pioneer your way in the world and i think this is an example of that right like he had to create this like work for himself there was no model for it he was just like i'm gonna do this i guess because it's what i want to do and he had to be courageous and he's the one that now our generations you know aspiring writers or current writers can look to him and say oh because he did it now I can do it and it'll make it easier for me, whatever. But he's going through, he's, you know, the front lines going through all the shit and having to, you know, dig his way through all of these, you know, barriers or jump all of these hurdles, you know, like he's the yeah, one that's really doing this. Exactly. And not only was he an advocate for LGBTQ plus rights, just by nature of his writing, but he was also heavily involved with the American civil rights movement because it wasn't just the barrier of being an openly queer person Mm -hmm. at this time. It was also being a black man at this time and like going through the civil rights movement for all of these different reasons and needing to be a part of the movement for so many different like important identities. So his intersectionality. Exactly. And when I was reading about this, (laughs) I was thinking back to like college where we were learning about um, what intersectionality was and we watched like the Kimberly Crenshaw TED talk if you've ever mm-hmm. seen it they showed it in like five different of my classes and I appreciate that don't get me wrong but people <laughs> didn't ever fully understand it and then I read things you know about James Baldwin and it really does provide 
good examples of what an intersectional framework is meant to teach people right like it, right. it's meant to explain to you how people don't exist as just like one person moving through the world as right. either they're not a, a woman story. or either a white person exactly right. it's like you have all of these different parts of you that create important narratives about who you are in the world right and um i think james baldwin in case anyone out here listening is a professor or a teacher or wants to talk about intersectionality do the Kimberly Crenshaw TED Talk. That's also very important. But I think talking, like reading James Baldwin's work could also yeah. be very helpful in explaining the concept. Absolutely. That's my two, that's my two cents. Oh, I'll take it. <laughs> Similarly, Michelle Gordon, a professor at Emory University, comments in the same kind of way about Baldwin saying he wrote about, quote, being Black in America, being Black and gay in America, being a Black American in Europe, being Black and gay in the world. It all gives him an outsider status, which allows him the ability to see the world so clearly because he did not quite fit. Mm -hmm. It's like kind of sums up everything we've been saying. Yeah, that's so important. And I think that's what makes him such a prolific writer is that he had all of these viewpoints and he was in all of these marginalized groups like he was seeing you know the world from so many different unique perspectives and like needed perspectives that his work i think that's why i think his perspective is so valuable then and now because of all of these different components and parts that especially a lot of people and like a lot of modern readers don't have right so both of us are white both of us are cis, you know, we are not, not saying that he wasn't cis, but like both of us are a lot of things that he wasn't. So right. his voice and voices like his are so important to, you know, teaching ourselves about blackness and queerness and all of these other, other things. Um, so yeah, I would, I would agree that his, his voice and perspective are both incredibly invaluable. Yeah, absolutely. And he was aware of this at the time, too. And that's why he was involved in so many of the activist and advocacy movements that were happening. Um, you know, his work was really important. That was the main thing he did. And it is helpful to be able to read fiction, mm -hmm. but still it tell us a story about a perspective we don't have the opportunity or the ability to really see as much of. And so it's a, a great way to learn those things. Mm -hmm. But you know, along with the writing that he did, he did support, like we were talking about, other movements at the time. So his home in Greenwich Village saw visitors like Toni Morrison, and in the 1970s, he spoke openly against the arrest of Angela Davis and supported the Black Panther Party, like all very publicly. And so these things were considered radical for the time. But when asked in 1986 about all these important pieces of his identity and how they all fit together and if they have affected him professionally, he jokingly replied, quote, no, I thought I had hit the jackpot. It was so outrageous. You had to find a way to use it, unquote. Right. <laughs> so he was like, yeah, I got all this stuff going for me. Right, right. Like, I've got all these things going on. I've got all this marginalization. It's absolutely wild that all of these things have happened. Lucky I, me. There's no way I can't not talk about it. Right. <laughs> and thankfully, though, like, and he has a sense of humor about it. But thankfully, like you said, it did give really valuable insight into these things in a way that I don't think 
I think people would be more willing to access mm-hmm. than just like at the time. So Baldwin, though constantly reflecting and writing about the complicated and often challenging world that typically pushes down queer men of color, he was always hopeful and uplifting. He was constantly fighting for political and social change. Towards the end of his career, um, in 1986, he was inducted by President Francois Mitterrand. That doesn't sound French, but it's spelled that way. So I got Francois right. Yeah, you did. So (laughs) he was inducted by President Francois Mitterrand as a commander in the National Order of the Legion of Honor, Mm -hmm. which is France's highest honor of merit for military and civil contributions. Wow. Yeah. And what year was that in? 1986. Wow. Okay. So Mm -hmm. he's getting recognition of his importance and his um his work while he's alive and yeah absolutely he was like a fairly vocal activist Mm -hmm. at the time and his work was being recognized definitely but like I said he was kind of being recognized as radical too with his support of you know communist Mm -hmm. movements Mm -hmm. and the release of Angela Davis and the Black Panthers and things like that right so he wasn't just focused on his writing and did want to make sure to contribute in other ways as well and was recognized for that. Right. In a 1987 television interview at the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic, he was asked about the decriminalization of homosexuality and the prejudice against homosexuals and said, quote, love is where you find it and continues on. No one has a right to try to tell another human being whom he or she can or should love. Baldwin died of stomach cancer on December 1st, 1987 in France with a funeral held at the Cathedral Church of St. John the Divine in Morningside Heights, Manhattan. In his book, The Last Interview and Other Conversations, Baldwin asserts, quote, I was not born to be what someone said I was. I was not born to be defined by someone else, but by myself and myself only. Some of his most famous works live on, including Giovanni's Room and If Beale Street Could Talk, which was just made into a movie recently and has that song from TikTok um, in it. So, you know the song that's like, play this song? I mean, he didn't write the song, but right. play this song with the your last photo on your camera and it'll make it sad or something like that. Oh. If Beale Street Could Talk within the last few years is one of my favorite movies. The story, like even, it just it captivated me the entire time and the score is gorgeous and this i literally cannot rave enough about that movie i was waiting to bring it up i love it <laughs> Street could talk i like literally listen to the soundtrack like the score mm, i don't mm-hmm. know maybe multiple times a week like I, it's what i listen to in the morning it is just the entire yeah. thing is i love it i'm gonna look it up because i have the one song from the score saved on my phone too because it is a, it's a tiktok Eden. it's a tiktok sound okay now I'm going to find it. I'm going to take a moment to find it. Okay. But I remember you you saying that you did really like that movie, and I, I still have yet movie. to watch it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Agape. Agape. Nicholas yeah. Bertel. Also, the movie I Am Not Your Negro is on Netflix, which is based off of his unfinished manuscript. Though I haven't seen it, but doing research for this, I noticed that critics have commented on its lack of emphasis on Baldwin's sexuality and how that influenced his life. So if you watch it, kind of now you know some of this, um, you know this backstory, and maybe you could kind of fill in some of those blanks. So yeah, that's James Baldwin. First off, that was a great story. Um, I love hearing about him and and 
just all of the work that he did and he was such an important person I think the thing that I love about him the most is his fluidity and just the way that he was just so against boundaries and constrictions and labels and he just was such an inspiration of a person and I think he's a very important person that people learn about and hear about and read his work or you know watch his work if you are more into movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really wonderful learning about him. And something I found doing research almost every week, you know, James Baldwin specifically, like what you were saying, he just kind of existed. <laughs> like, I think all of the things that we've been talking about have really shined a light on the fact we wanted this to be like a, a history podcast of things we never really learned about or never were given the opportunity to learn about. But it is important that a lot of these folks, even though they were living in a time that didn't appreciate these aspects of their lives, were still living as themselves. This didn't fully define exclusively who they were. They had many other things happening. And this isn't us just like telling you about the queer aspects of people's lives, but their existence as a whole. And I think James Baldwin... And the way he summarized everything else too. Like he just did, it was really interesting learning this week about him and about just him existing. Right, as a a whole person and the fact that we have the opportunity to read some of the fantastic Mm -hmm. things that he's written. But just the fact that part of this stuff was kind of erased from what we knew about him unless you are looking to read very specific works of his. Yeah. Yeah, it's like kind of, I don't know, I feel like we say it every week, but it's like if you're not, contextualizing or having someone contextualize someone's work it's an aspect that could go completely over your head like it's just something that could be dropped so easily so it is important that we do keep that aspect in you know his work and while we're reading and watching it and just kind of absorbing um who he was as a person not even as an artist just as a person yeah absolutely Thanks for tuning in to episode six of Historically Really Good Friends, where we talked about some real American treasures. This is your weekly reminder that acknowledging the queerness of our history makes even transatlantic commuting a little bit more fun. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. To see photos from this week's episode, make sure to check out our Instagram at Historically Really. We hope to see you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.